Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Ginevra Allen. Ginevra is an associate professor of statistics in the Department of Statistics, Computer Science, and Electrical and Computer Engineering at Rice University, as well as founder and director of the Rice Center for Transforming Data to Knowledge, and an investigator with the Neurological Research Institute with the Baylor College of Medicine. Ginevra, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we jump right in and have you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, You work kind of at the intersection of stats as well as medicine. Uh, How do those connect for you? And how did you arrive at this, uh, your research interests? Sure. Um, So my my work, my research interests are to build uh, statistical and machine learning tools to help scientists make discoveries from their big and large complex data sets. Um, I uh, particularly like working in neuroscience and genetics, um, but I'm interested in lots of scientific problems. And I took a little bit of a roundabout track to get here. Um, I went to undergrad interested in music, actually, but took a statistics class and, and really liked it. It felt like um, uh, it made sense. It's kind of the, to me, it's kind of the uh, mathematical basis of uh, making decisions, right? Kind of data-driven decisions. And I really liked that a lot, um, got into statistics. And, and as an undergrad, I actually worked um, at the Baylor College of Medicine, um, which is across the street from Rice University, where I was doing my undergrad, as a data analyst in um, a biomedical research lab, um, but also did some research in statistics and then went to grad school um, at Stanford in statistics, which um, that department is heavily influenced by machine learning and computer science. So while in grad school, I took quite a bit of classes in machine learning and applied math and optimization, um, and that kind of launched my uh, my research at the intersection. It, it, it's interesting. I, I'm pretty interdisciplinary um, using kind of statistics, machine learning, optimization techniques, but all applied to solve scientific problems. You gave a talk at the AAAS conference, was it last month? It was last month. Okay, AAAS being the American Association for the Advancement of Science on the topic of reproducibility in machine learning that uh, it sounds like from what I read, the reaction to your talk caught uh, you a little bit by surprise. Uh, Maybe uh, we'll start by, you know, talking about the reaction and really dig into kind of your thoughts on the topic. Absolutely. Um, So I gave a talk at um, the AAAS meeting um, and a press briefing, and uh, I titled my talk, uh, Can We Trust Data-Driven Discoveries? Or more specifically, Can We Trust Discoveries Made Using Machine Learning Techniques um, from Large Scientific Data Sets? And um, I, I really asked this question as a to, to be a bit provocative, but my core interest and, and my research is actually on how to answer these questions. So kind of what are some of the new research directions and directions we can go to help 
make scientists, uh, give scientists tools so that they can better make inferences from their really big data using machine learning techniques. Um, so I, I gave a talk and outlined some of these new research approaches, um, some general approaches and some uh, new research uh, from my own group as well. Um, so I was certainly uh, a, a surprised, to say the least, at some of the response um, online. And um, I'd love the t to take the opportunity to dig into this deeper. Um, I think that there are a lot of people um, that uh, were very excited about what I said and said, hey, these are good points, or at least these are things that we should have a conversation about or start a discussion on. Um, others were quite upset and said I was, you know, uh, machine learning public enemy number one, which I, I would <laughs> disagree with slightly because I, I love machine learning. It's what I do. I think machine learning is awesome and want to promote machine learning. And that's certainly not what I was doing. But I would love um, to raise the point of um, uh, that there's a lot of research directions in this area. And perhaps today I can highlight a couple of those and um, perhaps spark some ideas for other machine learning researchers. Let's do that. But where I'd like to start, having seen your slides from that presentation, uh, is where you started. Uh, and in particular, you gave a lot of examples very focused on uh, medicine and biological science. We've talked uh, here on the podcast about the reproducibility problems in ML broadly, uh, but I'd love to... Uh, understand the way you contextualize them in the the medicine domain. Absolutely. Um, so I, I should say biomedical um, data is really broad. There's lots of different um, types of data out there and machine learning techniques that people apply to it. Um, so I can give a couple of examples, but there's lots of situations where there's pretty large and complex data sets over the past, say, 5, 10 years, 20 years. There's been a lot of new technologies developed to measure, say, nearly every aspect of our genome or um, to image brains um, and record from neurons at scales larger than we could ever have imagined five years ago. And so all of this is really exciting, but the data is quite big. Um, and uh, to analyze this data and really kind of make discoveries from this data, you need to use its, you can't necessarily just use classical statistics and classical techniques. A lot of machine learning techniques are used to really dive into this data and understand the data. Um, and uh, the question I would ask is, um, are the discoveries that we make from using techniques in this data, are they reproducible? So a specific example um, is, and th this has actually been um, a, a well-studied example. So in um, uh, cancer genomics, uh, people are very interested in finding uh, subgroups of patients that have, uh, are genomically similar, have genomically similar tumor um, uh, profiles, but, uh, and, and also have clinical differences. And these are uh, cancer subtypes. And um, these are very promising in precision medicine because they're useful in precision medicine. 
where, say, we want to find groups of patients that are genomically similar and develop drug targets that can specifically target their genomic signatures. So um, it's important to find these groups of patients that have these similar genomic signatures. And one very successful, very well-known case study of this is in breast cancer, where there's very famous breast cancer subtypes that have been very well validated. Um, these were found using uh, uh, clustering techniques, pretty standard clustering techniques, actually just hierarchical clustering. And um, the, there's a very strong signal and separation between groups of patients based on their genomic profiles. And these uh, subgroups have been very well validated by many studies in many um, clinical settings. And now they're actually developing drugs that are targeting specific uh, four different subgroups of breast cancer right now. So that's a success story of using machine learning in, um, in biomedicine. Um, and after that, a lot of people for various different cancer types, say lung cancer, colorectal cancer, or ovarian cancer, have, have asked the same questions. Can we find these subgroups that have, um, where their tumors are genomically similar so that we can treat them in a similar manner with similar drugs? And um, the problem is, is that one, you know, one paper will come out and they'll make a big splash and say, here's a de definitive, you know, subtype and, and, and clustering of, you know, this particular cancer type. And then a, another paper comes out maybe two years later on another cohort of patients that has a different clustering and maybe even totally different numbers of groups, anywhere from three uh, subtypes or groups to seven subtypes or groups. And they haven't necessarily been consistent and reproduced. And um, uh, several of the people that have tried to do meta analyses on these studies have said, look, you know, some of these, these clustering results that we found, these uh, proposed subtypes, uh, don't in fact are not reproducible, do not necessarily hold up. So this is just one example from cancer genomics, but um, I think it's reminiscent of kind of a, a, a larger problem now, I should uh, uh, caution that my research is not necessarily on, it. I don't study the extent of the reproducibility crisis. Um, uh, I'm focused more on uh, developing methods to solve problems related to this. Um, but I do think this is an open area for research. I do think it's a problem in biomedical studies. Um, and I've certainly heard lots of anecdotal evidence that there's um, a problem from both scientists who are reading these papers and say, look, I tried to reproduce this lab's finding from their big data set. I have data just like it. I tried to reproduce it. I, you know, couldn't. I, I hear this actually quite a bit, um, a lot from scientists that I work with. I hear this also from other um, uh, machine learning and data science researchers uh, in the biomedical domain um, who seem well aware of the problem. Um, and uh, I do think it warrants further investigation. Okay. Uh, so a couple of clarifying questions. Uh, the first is you talked about the uh, breast cancer studies that have been uh, validated that originated from using statistical clustering techniques uh, and then some other results that have not been validated and, and where contradictory results have found. Just to, to make sure, the statistical techniques in, in both uh, I guess there are a couple of ways to ask this question. A, that are you kind of categorizing the clustering techniques in, used in the first example as machine learning, uh, you know, and or you know, are the clustering or the techniques used in some of these other studies are are they the same? And the issue is that 
you know, what worked here is trying to be used in other places and it's not working? Or, you know, are there different types of techniques being used? Ah, okay. So um, that's a great question. So first, I I don't like to necessarily call techniques statistics techniques, machine learning techniques, data science techniques. I I actually think there are a lot of the the same toolkits. It's just a data scientist toolkit. And uh, we should probably be using all of these techniques. But most of the techniques that discovered the breast cancer subtypes are very, very, very simple algorithms, uh, hierarchical clustering and k-means, very standard clustering algorithms. Um, And I I characterize the reproducibility um, issue here as not just, you know, a scientist, you know, took a, a new data set and applied the exact same pipeline and the exact same techniques and couldn't reproduce the results. But it's also if something is, is truly, I, I think our goal, especially when it comes to analyzing scientific data, our goal is to make some type of scientist, scientific discovery that actually has underlying principles. In this case, that actually, um, if we're trying to find subgroups based on uh, similarity of genomic profiles, uh, the, there should be some actual underlying biology um, that links these groups. So there's, there's some type of scientific truth that we're trying to discover. And um, we, we don't want necessarily, um, or, or our goal should be to have techniques that we can apply that we understand um, whether it's likely to be, uh, a finding is likely to be reproducible on a future data set, not just when applying the exact same kind of technique and pipeline, but is going to be lead to kind of a reproducible true discovery, perhaps if you alter the pipeline a little bit, apply a slightly different clustering technique. So it's really kind of a robustness to like the particular choices of the data analyst um, uh, working with the data. So um, it's a little bit more than just exactly, I, I think stage one is you should be able to exactly apply someone else's pipeline on a new data set and hopefully get similar results. Kind of, you know, the training to test that type thing. But a step beyond that is if you change the pipeline just a little bit, if another analyst applies a very reasonable clustering technique or dimension reduction technique, um, can you still recover the same type of scientific result under reasonable perturbations um, uh, to your methods? Do you contend that kind of reproducibility by definition means that you should be able to apply the same pipeline to different data sets that are exploring different diseases? Why are those, uh, why do those need to go hand in hand? Ah, okay. So I'm not necessarily saying apply the same pipeline to data sets on different diseases. Let's think about this. Okay, so we're talking about data sets. You've got the same fundamental type of data. Imagine Uh, you've got a training data set and uh, say if you're doing, if your goal in machine learning is doing prediction and prediction has been super well studied and we know, or a lot of people are doing research on how to do reproducible um, predictive models, right? We've got a, and the fundamental premise is we've got a training data set and we've got a test data set, right? right? And we've got prediction error that measures how close our predictions on the test data set are to the true labels or outcome on that data set. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've got very well understood principles for measuring kind of uh, the reproducibility or the uh, more broadly, like the generalizability of our findings when it comes to prediction as the goal. Right. And what 
I, I think the other kind of uh, big goal of machine learning techniques is data-driven discovery or inference. And I would define this as, uh, uh, say, trying to find insights from, uh, from big data. Right, so we're not interested necessarily in, and this isn't a distinction between unsupervised learning and supervised learning. It's more of a distinction of, in prediction, are you interested in just the predicted labels or outcomes and it's kind of a black box that got you there and you don't care what got you there? Or um, are you interested in, in what's underneath that black box, the insights from the data? So this could be, say, if you're doing supervised learning, um, say you're interested in which features are associated with the outcome and your uh, inference question is what are the important features associated with my outcome? Or it could be this find groups or structure in my data set, find patterns, find interactions between features and so forth. So those insights from data, um, uh, we have a lot of fantastic machine learning methods that have been developed to find all sorts of really great insights from big data. Um, it's really awesome. There's been so much development in this area. This is actually one of my primary areas of research. Um, but there's been less research until recently on asking, um, can we get that type of same generalizability and reproducibility of our uh, data-driven discoveries as we can for prediction? So for example, in prediction, we assume that our training and our test data come from the same population. It's the same data set, right? And our goal is to uh, build, is to learn um, some type of machine learning model on a training data set that's going to generalize well on future data set, which is the test data set that comes from the same population. And if you overtrain to your training data set, you of course overfit and your model will not generalize well and you're going to have poor predictions on your test data. So imagine even you can do the same thing with data-driven discovery if that's your if if that's your primary goal and say okay we've got a test um, we've got a training data set and we've got a test data set and what if we use our training data set to find a particular type of pattern or group or important features if you there's a lot of potential to say overfit and I'm saying overfit in quotes to your training data and find particular kind of discoveries that are inherent in your training data that are probably not gonna generalize to a test data set that comes from the same population. And so the question is, is how can we build um, uh, new data-driven discovery techniques or um, perhaps kind of other uh, techniques to, to make sure that the discoveries we make um, are generalizable to kind of future test data sets in the context of data-driven discoveries. You actually hit on my second question, which was I was kind of keying off of your use of the, the, the term scientific discovery here and really wondering about like the, the, you know, what's special about that relative to other uses of machine learning in other places that this reproducibility problem comes up. And I think that the idea of prediction versus inference really captured that, uh, captured that really nicely. So we're talking about, you know, the way we typically think about kind of building these models, you've got some data set and you kind of split it into your training data and your test data and you build a model. And in some ways you want to apply that to you know, another data set, 
you know, totally different data set, meaning the same kind of data, obviously the same, you know, underlying population, but a data that's been collected, you know, maybe differently and that you can, uh, you kind of massage to, to kind of fit the need of your original pipeline. We look at kind of the, the way we typically report these results, like in academic papers, we're almost always using the same data set. Oftentimes, it's kind of the same data set that everyone else uses. Uh, and so, you know, there's this reproducibility across different data sets. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps talking a little bit less about reproducibility across different data sets of, of different types, but more asking with um, if your goal is to do inference or data-driven discovery instead of prediction, are there good ways of assessing how generalizable your results are from an analysis of a particular data set? Um, so in, in particular, let's, let's take an example of just imagine you've got a, a, a data set that someone gives you a big, um, could be scientific data, could be any data, someone gives you a big data set and you split it into two-thirds training and one-third test data. Um, so if you were doing prediction, there's great metrics on you build, you, you build um, a, a model that um, predicts some labels on your test data, and there's great metrics to measure the success of your labels, um, misclassification error, all sorts of other things. We have kind of metrics to measure prediction error. If we're doing data-driven discovery, for example, suppose you find clusters or groups on your training data set. Um, how do you measure on your test data set whether you have those same, whether you found those same groups? Do you apply your same clustering pipeline on the test data and group those, uh, group those observations and then see how they overlap? There's no, there's many different ways to define this, and some people have proposed this in the literature, but it's not even clear what metrics are to measure different types of uh, the reproducibility of different types of data-driven discoveries. Um, so I think one of the first research questions in this area, um, uh, or, or an, an open question would, if you do use the training and test set split, um, what are possible metrics to measure kind of the accuracy of, say, clustering results or pattern recognition results or interactions, important interactions between features or things like this. We have very clear metrics when it comes to prediction. We have, we've got great stuff um, in the prediction realm. What about these kind of inference on data or data-driven discovery realm? So you're not even trying to address this broader issue of reproducibility and, and kind of that disconnect uh, between what you're specifically looking at and this kind of where I was taking it is is leading me to ask, do we even have good names for like these different types of reproducibility issues yet? Yeah, that, that's actually a really great question. Um, I don't think we do. I think we need to somehow expand our terminology because um, uh, I don't know the right words to always talk about this. Uh, we everybody when you say computational reproducibility, everybody knows what that is. That we should document our code and all of the steps so that you can fully computationally reproduce the results on your given training data set that you analyzed. Right? Mm -hmm. um, we know what computational reproducibility is. We know what um, generalizability of prediction results are. Right? Mm -hmm. We've studied that very well. 
Um, I'm not really sure how to, I don't know that there's a good definition or good terminology to talk about how we generalize results for data-driven discoveries or make sure, I, I like to call this, you know, make sure they're reproducible. Generalization is really making sure that the results are reproducible. All right. So some of the techniques uh, that we do have for doing this, walk us through uh, through that. Absolutely. Um, so the, the first and easiest one, you can split your data into a training and test data split. Um, and you can do kind of, uh, you can build a, a pipeline. I like to say your, your data analysis pipeline needs to be automated in some way so that you can apply it without kind of human uh, interaction on your test data set and see, do the quote discoveries that I made or inferences that I've drawn from my training data set, are they the same on my test data set? So that's one check. It's not a great check because you really only have one data set. And if they don't exactly match, the question is, well, is it because of the random split that I made in my training test data set, or is there something wrong with my pipeline and my methods? Um, or is the discovery not there? Um, so uh, you can repeatedly split the data into training and test data sets and do this over and over again. The challenge is you might get slightly different discoveries, right? If your goal is, say, feature selection, every time you resplit your data, you might select slightly different features. So in the end, what is the true discovery from, um, from this method? Um, so there has been some work on this. Um, there are some challenges with that approach. But an approach um, that's an extension of this that I think is perhaps one of the easiest approaches for practitioners to apply right now is the stability principle. And the idea of the stability principle is very simple, um, and it's a stable discovery is likely to be a reproducible discovery. The idea is to take your training data set and randomize your training data set in a way that would mimic if you had future test data sets. So for example, if you have IID observations in a training data set, you can perhaps bootstrap your data or subsample your data as a specific example. In other situations, you might want to um, add a slight noise, maybe even Laplace noise um, in certain situations. So you're randomizing your data and you do this repeatedly for say 500, 1,000 times, and you apply your data analysis pipeline to uh, draw your inferences and make your discoveries on every one of the randomized data sets. And then you aggregate the results over all, um, all of the randomizations. And uh, the discoveries that are stable, meaning those discoveries that appeared in all of the different randomized data sets, or a high proportion of them, are likely to be reproducible discoveries. So why is it that doing uh, this type of analysis using randomized noise as opposed to randomly generating your trained test split? Uh, why is the former more efficient? Or if efficiency is not the right word, why is it uh, you know, easier to do in practice? Um, I, I think the training and test set splits are um, they're certainly uh, doable in practice. Um, there's a challenge of how you aggregate all the results over all of those different training and test set splits at the end. Um, so maybe you, you split your data, and every time you split your data, you get slightly different discoveries that have different generalization properties on the test data set. Um, the stability principle, I actually think, takes that randomly splitting your data over and over again. And it's, it's very similar because uh, you can, for example, subset your data many times. You can just repeatedly randomly sample two thirds of your data 
over and over again. It's very similar to data splitting, but the goal is just to aggregate all of the uh, discoveries you made over the different randomization which ones kind of always appeared. It's kind of a robustness measure that if we kind of randomize and shake up our data over and over again, and the discovery, whatever that discovery is, if it's always there, it's probably got a pretty strong signal and it's probably going to be generalizable. Yeah, I still don't understand why you can't do that with the data splitting. Like in both cases, you ultimately have a, 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 a bunch of test and train or a bunch of train data sets and you're training a model and then you're looking at the features and you're trying to, in the case of stability principle, you're looking at the features and looking at maybe taking a, a majority or, you know, which one, which features uh, rank highest on the importance over a bunch of different runs. Why couldn't you do the same thing on the data splitting side? You absolutely can. Um, uh, so uh, absolutely. And, and again, subsampling for stability principle is essentially the same as data splitting. Okay. Um, the yeah, so, so they're essentially the same thing if you're aggregating the results over them. The challenge with data splitting is, again, a, a, a matter of do we have a metric for when we apply our discovery technique to the test data set? Do we have a metric to understand whether it's a good a discovery or it's generalizable or not. And we don't, like we do for prediction error if our goal is prediction. Ah, but with the stability principle, we do have firmer metrics? I'm not sure they're firmer metrics. It's just an indication if you aggregate over all the different randomizations, you just, it, it's some measure of kind of the uncertainty in your discovery or the robustness of your discovery. So um, I'm, I'm not sure it's a... Uh, I mean, you can always come up with metrics. You could probably do the same for data splitting. So both of these techniques are very similar to each other. Okay. Yeah. So there are, um, I, I did want to highlight, there are several other um, techniques that uh, some machine learning and uh, statistical researchers have started to look at, but are potentially really interesting directions to go. Um, and the first is an area called post-selection inference. And the goal here is to use your training data set to make some type of um, discovery for some type of machine learning procedure, and then say, can you do classical statistical inference on that discovery to say um, uh, you know, whether it's true or not? When I say classical statistical inference, I mean you know, hypothesis testing, confidence regions, and so forth. And the idea behind this approach is that if we, say, mine a big data set using uh, feature selection, clustering, uh, pattern recognition, any, any kind of techniques we would use to analyze a big data set, um, we're actually exploring that data set to find our model, to find our hypothesis. So it's essentially an exploratory analysis situation in which we don't have an a priori defined hypothesis in advance. We let our machine learning method find our hypothesis for us. And then since our machine learning method found our hypothesis, the, it's, a, it's a big challenge to say then, say now that we've used machine learning to find the hypothesis, we now want to conduct tradi traditional statistical inference on this hypothesis. Um, the challenge is all of the classical inference techniques that we know and love don't quite apply because they assume that you have uh, a, an a priori hypothesis in advance and that data was collected specifically to address that a priori hypothesis. 
Um, so, a so new techniques need to be developed in this area. And so far, there have been some techniques developed in, uh, for feature selection in this area that say, allow you to um, apply a feature selection um, method to a training data set. And on the same training data set, then say, test the coefficients from a model of the features that you selected. So this is an area, again, called post-selection inference, and it's potentially exciting because um, in, it, it's especially exciting for scientific researchers because um, in science, uh, to get published in a lot of the big journals, um, it, you definitely need p-values and confidence regions. Those are very important. And so I do see this as a potential, potentially uh, big contribution to um, science that kind of marries strate traditional statistical inference with machine learning methods. You made a comment about uh, features of your training data as opposed to features of your model. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so um, it, in the post-selection inference paradigm, the goal would be to not necessarily need to have a test, a, a training and test set split, but instead use your training data just as, um, as both the data for which you're going to find your model or select your model, um, meaning you're going to you know, find the hypothesis you want to test and then test that hypothesis on the same data. So the advantage of this approach over, say, stability and data splitting is it tends to be more efficient in terms of using the available data and using the available samples. The downside is the math is a bit harder, but that gives um, uh, math and stats people plenty to do. And so is there something about the way that the, the math is done uh, that you can elaborate on that gets us beyond, like when we typically think about uh, using the same data for training and evaluation. It's kind of double dipping and uh, you uh, tend to have overfitting problems. What about this particular technique allows us to avoid that? Yeah. So um, a core part of this technique says, um, can you take, um, say, whatever procedure you applied, um, can you take the and you design, you have some statistical test that you want to conduct and you have a test statistic. The question is, can you take that test statistic and can you decompose it into the part of the test statistic that is depending on your um, machine learning method or your, your method you use to select your model or select your hypothesis and the part that's not dependent on the machine learning method that you use. And then you condition on, um, you basically conduct conditional inference. Um, so you basically say, can I derive uh, the null distribution of my test statistic conditional on the results of the machine learning procedure? So that's essentially what's going on um, behind the scenes, and you need to calculate these conditional distributions, sometimes conditional on very complicated machine learning procedures, which is the mathematical challenge. And so when you talk about this mathematical challenge, are we talking about a computational challenge or an analytical challenge? Uh, more analytical challenge. Okay, so that kind of suggests to me that this particular approach is maybe harder to scale across a, a variety of different problems or maybe even a variety of different data sets? Is that yeah, the case? Yeah, 
I, I think you're you're exactly right here. Um, stability and data splitting, the first two I talked about, are pretty generalizable to any situation. Um, this post-selection inference paradigm so far is only applicable in limited settings, and it might it's not even clear that you're going to be able to generalize this to say all machine learning methods. Um, uh, that's that's currently unclear, but it is an active area of research. And so maybe going back to uh, where we started your talk and the reaction to your talk, you know, what what did all that say to you about uh, where kind of your community, the community that you were speaking to uh, of science, as opposed to you know machine learning uh, practitioners, you know, where they are in terms of their awareness of these issues and uh, where they need to be? Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like there some, sometimes machine learning researchers um, are there. There's a lot of great techniques being developed um, that are really cool that can do just super um, fascinating things with data. Um, at the same time, sometimes the way machine learning is used by practitioners is very different from the latest and state-of-the-art machine learning techniques that are being, being developed by machine learning researchers. And I think there is a bit of, of, of a disconnect between how kind of machine learning researchers uh, view how machine learning should be used and what it should be used for and how um, people use it in practice, and particularly how scientists are using machine learning um, techniques to make inferences and discoveries from their very large, complex data sets. And so I do think it's important to pay attention to how people are using machine learning techniques in science, and particularly, um, uh, and, and part of my goal in my research is, how can we improve machine learning techniques to make them easier for scientists to use or um, uh, describe kind of underlying principles to scientists in very clear terms that they can understand. For example, scientists are now um, very aware, and, and practitioners of machine learning all know that if you're doing prediction, you have to have a separate test set. It's not okay to just train a model on a training data set and report your training error. Um, so that's very well understood um, in pra amongst practitioners. I think we can definitely do a better job when it comes to inference and data-driven discovery on uh, perhaps developing the best ways to go about this and also um, making sure that those methods um, uh, get turned into practical tools that, um, uh, that everybody can use to help analyze their data. So a lot of the work that's happening in the broader machine learning community, and maybe this is just the kind of with a, a commercial lens on, but it's focused on, um, I guess not even commercial, you know, the open source community, things like uh, TensorFlow and PyTorch on the deep learning side and the, the, the toolkits like scikit-learn and Python, like a lot of this activity uh, is... You know, we talk about this idea of democratizing machine learning, like making it mm -hmm. more accessible. Do your findings suggest that this is wrongheaded or, you know, we're not ready for that yet? Oh, no. I mean, that's fabulous. That's that's what we should do with research is make, make it open source and everybody have access to it. Um, at the same time, I do think it's important that um, we're educating users and practitioners about how best to apply these techniques in practice and what are really what are good underlying principles and simple principles that they can 
use and follow to make sure they're getting robust discoveries. And again, uh, I, I think in a lot of uh, comments to um, in, in the news articles following my talk alluded to this, the problem isn't necessarily that the machine learning techniques are, are bad or not, not correct, and it's not at all. The machine learning techniques are great. Um, it's often in how they're applied. And um, so I, I do think we have a responsibility to think carefully about um, how we're educating people on how to apply these techniques and what the principles are um, for doing so. Got it. Got it. So you see this first and foremost as a problem of uh, education, in particular around the appropriateness of, of these techniques. Yeah, and it, it was like you said earlier, you asked, you know, is there even a terminology to talk about reproducibility when it comes to inference or data-driven discoveries? And I don't, I don't think there is. We're not, we don't even have terms to necessarily talk about this yet. So how can we expect practic practitioners and users to um, understand how to appropriately apply these techniques in these situations? So um, I would love to see more um, uh, machine learning and statistical researchers get into this area and, um, you know, hash out what's a robust terminology to talk about this, what's the correct, like, mathematical paradigm to write down for these types of problems, and let's start studying them and making sure we get the word out to practitioners to um, use the machine learning techniques appropriately so that they can um, do get more generalizable discoveries and hence do better science. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, Ginevra, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this really interesting work and conversation. And, and I appreciated, you know, I, I obviously struggled with that terminology myself in, in trying to kind of narrow in on what we were talking about here. Um, but I think there is definitely a lot of work to be done uh, in this space. And thank you for, for doing it. Well, thank you very much for having me on. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.